All right, the ordinance of covenanting week 42 uh, we're in the solemn league and covenant this is part five fourth term of communion that public social covenanting is an ordinance of god obligatory on churches and nations under the new testament that the new covenant and the solemn league are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person <clears throat> we're up to the fourth article and um, in this article we're going to uh, be delving into one of the more I suppose controversial uh, aspects of the Solemn League uh, this has to do with <coughs> whether or not we should uh, be ferreting out those who are enemies of true religion and uh, how we should deal with that, um, who we should consider to be enemies of the true religion, uh, and questions of that, uh, that kind. So, <clears throat> we understand, or we should understand by now, the Solemn League, <coughs> the Solemn League is in, in is concerned with <coughs> uniformity of religion and um, a general uh, civil league between the nations, particularly of England, Scotland, and Ireland, but all. Uh, who would fall under the, the scope of the Solemn League are taken into this. These, um, the provisions of the covenant are, are um, both ecclesiastical and civil. <coughs> and <coughs> now we have to consider um, the fact that in prosecuting the interests of this covenanted uniformity <clears throat> in both church and in the kingdom or the, the, the nation, the state, <clears throat> you're going to find people who are uh, enemies of what it is that is being undertaken. And so the covenant... Uh, brings an additional binding that is supposed to um, instruct and guide in the detection of those who are actual enemies. <clears throat> those who are uh, seeking to undermine and before we get into it, I, I think we need to um, uh, make a clear distinction in our thinking. Not everyone who's ignorant is an enemy or an incendiary or trying to undermine uh, this reformation. Right. So when we look at the characters of those who are <clears throat> 
enemies, incendiaries, underminers, resistors, hinderers, and so on, uh, we're going to see that in every case there's a presumption of either some knowledge of where Reformation is going <coughs> or from uh, what Reformation is from or perhaps even um, just a general sense that they're going to resist whatever God says uh, because they, they think it's impractical. Uh, so they don't need to be cognizant of every point of Reformation or even necessarily that it is Reformation <clears throat> so much as they're resisting the Word of God. And in particular, the implementation <clears throat> of the consequences of the Word of God in either church or state or both. <clears throat> so, uh, let me read the fourth article, we shall also with all faithfulness endeavor the discovery of all such as have been or shall be incendiaries, malignants or evil instruments, be hindering the reformation of religion, dividing the king from his people uh, or one of the kingdoms from another or making any faction or parties among the people contrary to this league and covenant that they may be brought to public trial and receive condign punishment as a degree of their offenses shall require or deserve or the supreme judicatories of both kingdoms respectively or others having power from them for that effect shall judge convenient. <coughs> There's a lot going on obviously in this this um, article. And so like we've been doing, we're going to take it apart piece by piece and look at the several propositions that make up this article. So the first question <clears throat> and the one on which everything else will uh, to some extent depend is whether or not those who are engaged in reform, <clears throat> those who are pressing for reformation, whether or not they should be engaged in the um, suppression of essentially those who are enemies of true religion in, in any respect. Um, and That's what's in, that's really what's being asked when we're when we're talking about undertaking against those who are enemies of the true religion. Uh, it's really committing us to a course of some kind of action, whether it be in church or in state. And um, this is one of these issues <coughs> where I think. <coughs> Enlightenment thinking has led the Western world to chaos. 
this idea of granting of authoritative tolerations and um, basically being willing to uh, tolerate anything on the part of the government, tolerating anything that they don't view as subversive to their rule or reign. <coughs> That's to make the, the civil magistrate the measure by which we determine whether or not something is actually beneficial or harmful. And that is to raise the civil government in its institution uh, and put it on a level actually above the Word of God. Right? Because as we've already seen with regard to the civil magistrate, if the magistrate is unlawful, <clears throat> if the magistrate is not conducting himself in a lawful fashion, there is no presumed right to loyalty or obedience um, to the degree that there is variance from <clears throat> the rule of God's moral law. We're not allowed, according to the Bible, just to follow orders because you know, they told us to do this. That's not a sufficient moral justification for doing what the Bible says is morally wrong. <clears throat> Conversely, just because some civil magistrate uh, thinks that something is to be tolerated, if the Word of God says it's not, we are to believe the Word of God rather than the magistrate. The magistrate does not have... Uh, in that case, a proper sense of their own duty. <clears throat> Nor do they have a proper apprehension of the truth. And so clearly, <clears throat> clearly they're not going to be um, competent to determine what is or is not harmful to the long-term stability and prosperity of civil society. Right. Civil society consists in much more than economic uh, benefit. Right. Economic benefit is simply one very limited aspect of what ought to concern a nation and its government. There's a lot more <clears throat> that is necessary for there to be uh, a proper uh, a properly uh, balanced and and um, uh, prosperous society. Right? Temporal prosperity is only one aspect. Uh, spiritual prosperity is something altogether different. You know, a, a country in which you have great economic freedom but lack social cohesion uh, a, a social moral fabric to the society is not long for this world <clears throat> because that prosperity is not transmittable or transferable 
from generation to generation. So we have to understand what we're talking about here is uh, that which is necessary not only for the present generation. Right? In 1643, when they take the Solemn League and Covenant, they're not simply thinking about their generation. They're doing what they consider to be a generation work, reforming the church, reforming the nation. But they're doing it with an eye to the future, and they're doing it with an eye to um, what is, in fact, the standard, the, the proper moral standard. <clears throat> they have their eyes set on the Word of God. And so anything less than that, anything that is um, uh, subpar, anything like that is going to be viewed as not only a suspect, but is going to be viewed as something which ought to be um, purged from the, the fabric of society. <coughs> so, question one. Should we undertake against the enemies of the true religion in church and state and endeavor to discover all of them? Now that may sound to a lot of people like a daunting task. Uh, the answer, the short answer is yes. And we want to look at Ezra 4, 1 to 5. Ezra 4, verses 1 through 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, you have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel. Ask King, si ask King Cyrus, the king of Persia, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah, and troubled them in building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So... <clears throat> when we get to the book of Ezra, uh, if we hadn't thought about it before, because of the exigencies of, of the, uh, the people of God returned from captivity and what they've been commissioned to do, um, it becomes apparent right away, actually, that they have a problem. There is what would have been called during uh, the 19th century they would have called it the, there's a fifth column <clears throat> that is <clears throat> there's a cadre of enemies within you know very often we tend to think of enemies as being something outside and other they're over there somewhere it's us versus them um, but it oftentimes falls out but those who are enemies of the true religion present themselves as followers of the true religion. So look at Revelation 3, 9. Revelation 3, verse 9. Behold, 
I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. And we know that friends, uh, the, the, uh, they're all, often those who are presenting themselves as friends of the civil government who are, in fact, not. So look at Esther 3.10. Esther 3, verse 10. Yeah, this is the problem, right? A lot of times, <clears throat> the enemies look like us, right? They're within, and we can't tell. <coughs> That's why it's necessary uh, to try to discover. Uh, that's why, for example, you know, when, when the U.S. Constitution says that there shall be no religious test for oath of office, uh, that's exactly the wrong prescription. Um, someone may take an oath uh, who doesn't mean it, right, or, or take it um, uh, and they intend to undermine it. But certainly we can at least begin weeding out those people that are, uh, if you will, honest opponents of what we're endeavoring to do. And then, you know, sometimes we're in a position, like we see in the verses we've read, <coughs> we're dealing with people who at first, uh, they seem like they're on our side. They seem like they are, in fact, proponents of the same religion. Uh, they have the same social or civil goals in mind. And then we find out they don't. Uh, there's a reason why George Gillespie, one of the Westminster Divines, leaves his dying testimony against unlawful associations or confederacies with known malignants, people who are enemies of the truth. It's bad enough <clears throat> that we're trying to figure out from time to time who is and who is not on our side. <clears throat> it's not enough that they profess that they are if there isn't a corresponding action. This is why our terms of communion consist both in um, the, the uh, theoretical or the, uh, the more abstract, we're asking you to confess uh, and, and, and um, acquiesce in certain principles but we go beyond that and actually want you to understand how we, we understand some of the more controverted principles to be spelled out in church and with relation to uh, the, the uh, civil magistrate. <clears throat> we have to discover very often who these people are. right? And this tells us we should never be complacent you know, uh, complacency is was really uh, uh, the thing that led to the demise of Julius Caesar at too brute, right? It turned out his best friend <clears throat> betrayed him. Uh, Christ, on the other hand, was aware that one of those that he had chosen was a devil and that it was necessary that he would die. Nonetheless, um, 
the other apostles were, or the, the other disciples, apostles were unaware. Uh, if you remember the the um, account at the Last Supper, <coughs> the um, when when Jesus mentions that one of them will betray him, uh, nobody seemingly turns and says, "Oh, it's that guy Judas who's holding the money purse." Right there blissfully ignorant <clears throat> at that time of this danger. And so these covenanters are saying, look, don't, uh, don't do this again. You know, this has happened again and again in the history of the church that people who made great pretensions sometimes to being friends of the true religion, friends of the truth, they turn out not to be. You know, so don't get carried away. Don't allow yourself... Uh, to get ahead of what you actually have reason to know and or believe to be true uh, that has some ground. <clears throat> so, as such, they have to be discovered in order they might be dealt with according to their designs. So look at Esther 7, uh, 1 to 6, and then 9 and 10. Esther 7, verses 1 through 6. So the king and Haman came to the bank to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day of the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me and my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king of Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. In verses 9 and 10. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath passed. Right. So, again, <clears throat> um, we have an example of, of a, a king dealing with those who are enemies, uh, coming to an awareness and so on. Uh, and there is, in fact, that idea of justice in Esther. If you remember, you know, Haman constructs gallows upon which he expects to hang Mordecai, and he gets hanged on the gallows that he has constructed for Mordecai. Uh, biblical justice is proportional, but right? it's equitable. It's not extreme. It's not. Um, it's not over the top. On the other hand, it's also not uh, going to under punish <clears throat> uh, generally, right? As far as what is known. Now, there's, there's always that aspect of justice, and we're going to be talking about this more as we proceed tonight. But there's always that aspect of justice that is known only to God. Right? God 
alone knows the motives. Now we may have reason uh, to to um, think that someone's motives are not ill, and we're going to judge, uh, you know, according to the Bible. We would judge very differently. For example, an accidental homicide versus <clears throat> the deliberate, premeditated murder of someone. <clears throat> How do we determine? One versus the other, well, a large part of it is motive. But we can't really get to the heart motive. We can only deal with externals, right? If we know that someone hated someone beforehand, uh, that they had um, uh, ill designs toward them and so on, that really argues for, you know, that, that idea of uh, uh, homicide, uh, of the first degree, murder, capital murder. Uh, if someone loses control of some tool and someone is killed as a result of that, but there was never any animus expressed or known uh, between them, the Bible says, you know, we presume that that was in fact an accidental homicide. We don't treat people with the same degree of severity. Uh, God knows ultimately whether or not uh, that was deliberate or not, <clears throat> and um, so ultimately, you know, there there is no escaping whatever injustices might uh, creep by in this life are going to be righted in the world to come. Um, nonetheless. As we discover those who are enemies of the true religion, whether in church or in state, <clears throat> uh, there has to be a resolve to deal with them in terms of justice, right? in terms of, of um, equity, principles of equity. You know, and, and that's going to be in part determined by their designs. What were they really trying to accomplish? Do we know? But if, if um, you know, you had the case in, in uh, uh, Reformation England, uh, Guy Fawkes was a papist. Uh, he was determined to blow up Parliament. And it was sort of discovered uh, almost by uh, serendipity. <clears throat> it came to uh, it came to the attention of the, the authorities. It, it failed. The plot failed. And um, in its failing it, it, it became discovered. Uh, just because it failed doesn't mean that they said, oh, uh, not such a bad thing, and slapped him on the wrist and sent him home. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they executed him. Uh, he was intending 
to commit a, a crime of mass atrocity. It was only his incompetence and the incompetence of those with him that prevented it. Uh, but um, so when we say we're we're going to reward you according to your designs, you know, if your designs, if you failed to murder someone but you intended to, and and everything points to that, for example, uh, you know, you shouldn't get off with. Uh, some period of imprisonment. In fact, the Bible, the only people who go to prison in the Bible are people who are debtors of some sort until they've paid their debt. Uh, or people are being held until they're executed. It wasn't this idea of a penitentiary. You can thank the Quakers for that. Uh, the idea that you put somebody in a little cell and make them sit there until they become penitent, uh, that's all go goes back to their idea of uh, the, the, the spirit moving in people and finally they, they come to a point where they think, oh, maybe I shouldn't behave this way. Uh, imprisoning people does nothing to rehabilitate. Just punishments um, actually bring the matters to a close and give people an opportunity, if they haven't committed something capital, to move forward. And a just society would uh, would probably be in, imprisoning far fewer people. The only people would would be um, those who met certain very restrictive criteria. But it wouldn't be a punishment per se. It would be mainly a, a means of keeping people from fleeing until they uh, had satisfied justice, whether repaying a debt or awaiting uh, their execution or some other punishment. <coughs> anyway. Question two, should we number among those that are to be considered enemies, those that hinder the reformation of religion? And um, the answer is yes, of course. Right, look at Nehemiah 4, 7 and 8. Nehemiah 4, 7 and 8. And it came to pass that when Sandalat, Gabiah, and the Ab Arabians, and Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up, and that the breaches began to be stopped, they then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. So those that seek to hinder the work of reforming religion, whether we're talking about church, state, or both, they oppose themselves to the command of God and show themselves to be adversaries indeed of God and his people. In Nehemiah 4, 11 and 15. Nehemiah 4, 11. And our adversary said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them, and slay them, and cause the work to cease. Verse 15. And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. So, hindering the work of reform of religion, um, is something which argues, I would say, mightily for being an enemy. <clears throat> uh, the fact is, we, and we're told this throughout the Bible in a number of different ways, the natural man is in a state of enmity against God. Uh, people who are 
unrenewed, unregenerate people are hostile to Christianity, real Christianity. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not religious. Very often, religious people are really not converted. Right? They're not regenerate or converted. And therefore, they are in a state of hostility. Hence, so many encounters Jesus has with the religious leaders and authorities of his day. It doesn't matter uh, who they are. They can be uh, ministers and elders. They can have all kinds of high-sounding titles of authority within the church, and they can be enemies. Uh, and that goes doubly uh, in, in nation-states. Moreover, by the way, those of our same nationality or ethnicity, if they oppose the command of God and the reformation of church or state, they are enemies to be exposed and resisted. Acts 23, 12, and 21. Acts 23, <clears throat> verse 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Verse 21. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. Yeah, it, it really turns out in the early days of the church, some of the biggest opponents, enemies, resistors, hinderers of that Reformation religion were Jews. Right? You would think that they would be the ones being the chosen people of God. They would have been at the forefront of this messianic movement. And some of them were apostles. But others were not. And so, you know, nationality or ethnicity is no guarantee. And, and this is an important point to, to understand because, you know, we are living in a society which is um, multi-ethnic society. All right? The Solemn League and Covenant was taken among three nations which were uh, almost entirely homogeneous ethnically. But they still recognized that there is this dividing line running down through their society potentially. <clears throat> there are people among them <clears throat> who are not going to be friends of the true religion. They're going to oppose it uh, in the nation state, the government, the civil government. They're going to oppose it in the church. It doesn't matter if they speak English or Scots dialect or Gaelic. Um, if, they're, if they're resisting this hindering religion, they need to be exposed and dealt with Period. Now let me let me say this: <clears throat> when you have a, a, a nation, a generally homogeneous ethnic group of people, and a portion of those people are resisting, and they're they're going to be brought under the rule of law, as is contemplated here in the Psalm League Covenant. <clears throat> no one is going to conclude that there's some uh, racist or supremacist ethic 
it's overriding or, or pressing the claims here. Th that only happens when you have a society that is multi-ethnic, and that's, that's actually part of the problem um, that gives us in our country, puts us in a, in a very difficult position uh, because there is this idea that uh, Christianity, a lot of people have this idea that Christianity is something uh, that is predominantly European. Uh, it's a European religion. And that, that is more of an historical conclusion that people have drawn. If you recall that it actually, Christianity begins in the Middle East, it's Asiatic, if anything, right? It's uh, not European. Uh, European peoples are predominantly Christianized. Um, but that is more of what we call an accident of history, or in biblical terms, the providence of God. Um, that's a different thing. That's a different thing, and, you know, that's not the fault of the European people per se. The fault of the European people, frankly, is that they've departed from this faith, they've relinquished it, rather than been pressing the claims throughout all of the nations of the world. Because Christianity, there's one thing that we should learn as we read the Gospels, is that although the Gospel was taken first to the Jews, uh, when they reject it, it is taken to all of the nations of the Gentiles without exception. There's a universality that is implied in Christianity. And a lot of the universal language the Arminians would use re regarding the atonement. You know, Jesus, uh, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. Uh, that's, that's a statement of universalism. That is, he didn't just love the Jews, he loved the Gentiles too. It doesn't mean that he loves each and every single individual Right? But it means he has an elect people that he'll be taking from among all nations, and ultimately every nation will be made submissive to the rule of Messiah, and the kingdom of God will prevail over the kingdoms of this world. Uh, nonetheless, <clears throat> this nationality, uh, this issue, these, these are people who are hindering reformation in church and state. It doesn't really matter you know, who they are. Right? Because the supreme concern of a Christian people ought to be the preservation, maintenance, and propagation of the true religion. Okay, so Paul doesn't care that they're Jews. He's a Jew himself. He, he's all consumed with the fact that they're pagans, uh, as far as their belief. They actually have more in common with the Gentile heathen than they do with believing Gentiles. And, we're going to, and we see that as the New Testament opens up. And that's, that's a shock to the Jews um, and probably a shock to a lot of the Gentile people as well. Uh, even those of one's own house ought to be counted as enemies of the true religion when they rebel against the truth and seek the shifts of unfaithful public men to cover, cover their ungodliness. 2 Samuel 15.31 It 
Second Samuel 15, verse 31. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So here again, <coughs> there's this idea, and it's a pagan idea, that blood is thicker than water. That is, it, uh, blood is more important than the water of baptism. Right, that there is, family comes before everything, and Christianity is saying no, it doesn't. Jesus Himself said, "I came to bring a sword to set father against mother, and child against parent, and so on and so forth." Right? Uh, he didn't come to to bring familial unity apart from Christianity. He came to bring a greater unity amongst those who are the people of God, in contradistinction from those who are not. Now, generally, the covenant unfolds in families and ultimately in nations. Okay, uh, there's th- this is the general uh, unfolding of the covenant is organic, which is why we practice infant baptism. <clears throat> but that's no guarantee. You know, you have twins, Jacob and Esau, right? And Jacob turns out to be a believer. Esau is not. Jacob is elect. God loved him from eternity. Esau, God hated from eternity. He's not a believer. And so, when we talk about hindering of the true religion, this is a principle that cuts down to the quick. And when they're telling us to do this, to discover it, There, th- this covenant is binding people <clears throat> who might be inclined not to give up members of their immediate or extended families if they're in fact papists or or trying to undermine uh, the the um, program of reformation. Right? They're not going to want to rat them out uh, to you know to these fanatical covenanters or what have you. The covenant, on the other hand, says, look, you have, if you're a believer, you have higher interests. You have a higher loyalty, a higher point at which you're trying to achieve unity. And if there are those who are going to resist it and try to hinder it, try to undermine that, they need to be exposed for who and what they are. doesn't matter. It could be your spouse. Could be your brother, your sister. Doesn't really matter. Those who hinder the reformation of religion shall not stand for God. They shall not stand for God is with the reform, not the deform. Look at Isaiah eight ten. Isaiah eight verse ten. <clears throat> Take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. Yeah, their their, their counsel is not going to stand. It can't stand. There is no counsel against God, right? There's no, there's no strength against what God is doing in the earth. You may, from your seeming, right, in your time and place in history, it may seem to you the easy way, the comfortable way, the convenient way, is the way of deforming and resisting uh, where this is all going. But don't be fooled. God is not mocked. Whatever you're sowing, you're going to reap. And, you know, if you sow 
you sow this kind of dissension, uh, the Bible says you're going to reap a whirlwind. You know, you're 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 bringing you're bringing destruction on yourself, on your family, on your nation. Ultimately, you're you're doing what you can to undermine God's program for the establishing of the kingdom uh, throughout the whole earth. It's not going to stand. You're on. You're choosing the losing side. It may seem like you're in the majority for the moment, but it's the losing side. There's no power or authority in the church, and, and if not in the church, let me just add, it couldn't possibly be in the state to deform, only to reform. It's 2 Corinthians 10, 8. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8. For so there are also those somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. And the apostle says his authority is given to edify, that is to build up, to reform, not for destruction, not for deformation, not for tearing down. There's no authority to deform, which is why when when uh, they come and say, oh, it's not a big deal if we just deform a little bit here or there, there's no authority for that. right? And, and if you agree to that, you are agreeing to counsel against the counsel of God and you're agreeing to that counsel to your own detriment, as well as to as much as in you lies to the detriment of everyone else. Right? So it's important <coughs> that we think very clearly on this. Doesn't matter who they are. Right? If they it doesn't matter, they, they can be our own family, they can be our own ethnicity. Um, it doesn't really matter if they don't toe the line <coughs> with respect to the true religion. If we are believers, we really have nothing in common with those people. Right? Our commonality, our community, and communion lies elsewhere. This is why, precisely why, throughout the history of Israel... You know, we have this continual, um, this continual immigration of certain believing Gentiles. They're taken in. Okay, they're admitted in. And they become, over time, Jews. You know, they're, they're, they, they dissolve their ethnicity into the ethnicity of these other people, the Jews, who are believers. Right? And, and this is, in part, <clears throat> I think, probably what a lot of people in this country originally intended or thought would happen. Uh, but very soon after, because there was no national establishment of Christianity, uh, it... it didn't work that way and all you do then in, in a nation without an established religion is you create burgeoning factions who are going to fight uh, and they're going to be they're going to become more raw edged in their fight when they see them whatever the majority ethnicity uh, when that majority ethnicity reaches a point of cleaving into two uh, equal parties, then these other 
people that should have been assimilated, uh, they become useful pawns in this divide among the majority. And that's, that's what happens apart from Christianity. Christianity, true religion, would have assimilated people. And eventually, you know, some of these people would have gone back to their own countries. We would have seen these other countries ceded. That's what should have happened uh, had there been an obedience to the gospel here. And eventually it will happen that every nation will, uh, will in fact, become subject to the gospel. But until then, in the interim, there, there is a good reason for people on occasion to immigrate or, or uh, immigrate, right? So you, may, you might need to leave someplace or go somewhere else. But it should be driven primarily, as it was for the Gentiles that came to the Jews, it should be a religious concern and not simply an economic one. If it's an economic concern, your God is mammon. And if the country is resisting because of mammon, uh, we know who the real God is uh, who's in ascendance in the minds and hearts of the people at that time. <clears throat> All right. Question three. Should we number among those that are to be considered enemies those that seek to divide the lawful magistrate from the subjects? The answer is yes. Second Samuel 15, 2-6. 2 Samuel 15, 2-6. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Yeah, so Absalom is just, a, I think, a great um, point of case study. Uh, in this idea of, of dividing subjects from lawful magistrates. <coughs> he's the son of the king. Uh, he's someone who is well-liked, very personable. You know, the people of the, of the kingdom view him as personable rather than strengthening the hand of his father in ruling the kingdom, uh, he is plotting and planning to do his own thing. Uh, he has uh, this idea that he's going to come to power, it will all fall to him, and um, uh, he's, he's not going to wait to see if his father, in fact, would put this kingdom in his hands. He's, he's, he's not thinking that way. He's not submissive uh, at all to the order uh, in his familial life, and it shows in his civil life. Right? It's the way of turbulent, factious, aspiring men to approach the government they're under. Second Peter two ten. Second Peter two verse ten. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. 
They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Yeah, there there is a self-willedness that is implied in all of this, right? They they don't want to be under the government that they're placed under. This is a principle uh, that you know begins with the family, but in in the case that we're talking about here right now, um, it is very much applicable within the church or the civil state of a nation. Men who seek to undermine lawful authority in its lawful exercise are factious. Right? They are rebels. The rebels at heart. Um, and you know, again, I I would remind you, the Bible is very clear. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft is all about trying to manipulate nature and that's what rebellion is doing it's against nature it's a rebellion frankly is as much of an unnatural uh, disposition as sodomy even David himself who was the best of kings and his administration could not escape the worst of censures or abusive attacks against this person. Look at Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9. Yeah, here's David who, uh, of, of whom I uh, think you'd be hard-pressed <coughs> to come up with um, a king who was better than David uh, in the in the broadest sense, right? Others may excel him in in um, certain degrees in certain departments, <coughs> but David is the one. Uh, the good kings are all compared to David. Bad kings are well, they're compared to people like Jeroboam. And other wicked people. Um, but the good kings are always compared to David. They've, they've done good like David. And, and there's, a, I think, a, biblically speaking, theologically speaking, there's a reason for that. David is a type of Christ. You know, in David's situation, by the way, uh, not saying that he lead, leads a sinless life, uh, but except for the matter of Uriah, Right, the premeditated murder of Uriah, God says that in everything else, David uh, was actively, his heart was toward him. Right, that he he was a friend of God, and he wanted to be a servant of God. His motives, uh, God himself bearing witness, were um, among the most sterling of, of civil rulers. And yet, David faced opposition, you know, from people uh, as close as his son Absalom. Right? They, they I, I'm sure Absalom, you know, had a, a, a thousands of complaints as every rebel does uh, about David. Uh, the, the funny thing is, we know that his complaints were bogus because God says that they were bogus. 
uh, because there was nothing to complain about um, other than one thing, and Absalom wasn't concerned about that. Uh, Absalom was concerned about Absalom, right? And what Absalom could get, what Absalom could do. Uh, David, on the other hand, was was a man of just temperament and merciful, and um, he in that is a, a very good picture of, of Christ in his state of humiliation. Uh, he's a very good picture of that in, in the fact that he he attracts enemies He doesn't even know how he gets them. Right? I mean, why would anybody hate Jesus? Uh, and you could, if you really read the, the accounts of David, there's not a whole lot of reason that we're ever given to hate David. But clearly a lot of people uh, are found hating on David severely and persecuting David and wanting to afflict David and bring harm to David. And and so those people, those kinds of people who would divide you know our our enemies. They're they're not just wrong. Right? They're enemies of the true religion. There's a difference. You know, if you think 2 plus 2 equals 5, you're wrong. Right? But if you think that the Bible is not, in fact, authoritative in matters of church and state, um, you're an enemy. And if you think that the Bible, uh, in the case of Absalom, that somehow some biblical principles... Uh, would allow you to escape being under the just authority of someone who's both your father and your king, um, you're an enemy. But thus, those that seek to alienate the hearts of the people from their lawful magistrates are engaged in a course of rebellion and ought to be considered enemies even as Absalom showed himself to be. Second Samuel 15, 10-14. 2 Samuel 15, verses 10 through 14. But Absalom sends spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called, and they went in their simplicity, and they knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the and there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are, with, are after Absalom. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, for we shall not else escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly, and bring evil upon us, and smite the city at the edge of the sword. Yeah, so, uh, we can take comfort knowing this. Your triumphing is relatively short. And their joy is only for a moment. Look at Job 20, verse 5. Job 20, verse 5. The triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. Yeah, they're, they're not going to escape. Right? Their counsel will come to naught. But we shouldn't seek to divide subjects from lawful magistrates. Now, I, I don't want to get into the whole question here about lawful magistracy and the uh, position of the Reformed Presbyterian Church on this 
matter of what constitutes a lawful magistrate. But I will say this in short compass. Lawful magistracy is conformed to the moral image held forth in the Ten Commandments. Uh, and when they have the revelation of Scripture, uh, they have an additional and superadded obligation of having made known to them clearly and objectively what they already knew because it was written in their hearts. Right? And if they don't conform to that, then they can't possibly be lawful. And that's why uh, we, we have said and we take the position that in a nation favored with the light of the gospel, it is absolutely impossible for a magistrate to be considered lawful by the people of God. You're not to have someone over you who's not your brother. Uh, you can't have a magistracy in, in such a nation considered as legitimate and lawful when they resist the light of the gospel. Right? Just can't be. Doesn't mean that you know we go out and behave ourselves again in all kinds of of uh, manners. We're bound by that moral law. It doesn't give us the right to behave in an immoral fashion. Right? We are not allowed to lie, cheat, and steal just because the government does. Right? We're not allowed to behave in ways that are untoward <clears throat> just because. The civil magistrate may. There's a reason why we've pressed from the beginning for the amendment of the Constitution to acknowledge Christ and his authority and to make all laws subject to the law of Christ. Uh, that is, to the, to the moral law, the Ten Commandments, uh, in, in, in its just application as we have uh, throughout the Bible. Alright, question four. <coughs> Should we number among those that are to be considered enemies? Those that would seek to divide nations and kingdoms that are joined together. So now, you know, we, we have considered um, people who want to divide uh, among the nations. Right? By the way, let me just say before we move into this particular point, uh, in light of what I said before, okay, people who seek to divide nations are enemies of the true religion. Right? Well, doesn't matter who or what they are. And, and so, what that means is, um, in this country, People who, because we have to understand that what they're doing when they press these questions, the, the answer to the domestic uh, turbulence going on in our society, the answer to that is submission to the true religion, right? Christianity as it is expounded by the Protestant churches. Right? When people tell you the answer is something else, 
you know, we need to we need to uh, give this group or that group more power or more this or more that. They are dividing people because the only answer that's going to unite people is actually a religious answer. Here, it's the only answer that is going to <clears throat> make it clear why assimilation is, in fact, the only legitimate path for maintaining a nation or ethnicity. Okay, diversity is not our strength. <clears throat> it never has been, it never will be. It's never been the strength of anything. The the strength of the Israel was not having a bunch of people come in who professed other religions. Right? Their their strength was when those people who came who believed were assimilated. Assimilation can only occur when there is a cultural hegemony of a majority ethnic population that bears sway over and influences the rule of law. And that will never happen without the national establishment of Christianity. So we're, we're on a course, a, a disastrous course, apart from that. Okay? But this principle, keep in mind, the Solemn League is about not only now joining seeing that there's internal cohesion, we had that with the National Covenant, frankly, with Scotland. Now we're talking about a cohesion between nations. How are nations going to interact? <coughs> now let me say, uh, before we get into this answer, there's, there's another point, historical point, that you should be aware of. Right around this time, 1643, uh, we're we're getting to the end of the Thirty Years' War on the continent, and right around 1650, <clears throat> Europe exchanges this idea of covenants and leagues for the basis of national or international relations, and it substitutes a principle called the balance of power. Balance of power idea is what brought us uh, such wonders in Europe as World War One and World War Two. The balance of power is the idea that we're going to uh, we're going to uh, set two or more groups uh, in in sort of an equilibrium so that they could. Uh, it, it, we've done this now worldwide with uh, the Soviet Union in my lifetime and um, the United States. <clears throat> where we had uh, uh, the, the, um, the balance of power it was described as mad, right? Mutually assured destruction. If one side pushes a button, the other side pushes a button, and we all go up into conflagration together. That's the logical outcome of this balance of power thinking. The Solemn League and Covenant is actually, it, it, it's the last time in history of the Western world, where we have this other idea about how nations ought to interact and relate to one another, and that is via a religious covenant and league. All right, so we want Protestant nations to join together, 
and we want the other nations to become Protestant and then join. The United Nations is actually grew out of the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson uh, was was uh, basically an apostate Presbyterian who was trying to do, and, and the United Nations is trying to work that covenant idea, but the problem is they have a covenant without God. Um, and that, that's, that's the other model that, that is rightly being rejected by people because it's, it's really just an international godless alliance. Right? It's like the Tower of Babel. What the Psalm League is saying is, no, we want nations to exist, peacefully coexist, uh, to the mutual benefit of one another in pursuit together of the worship and service of the true God. <clears throat> so, question four, should we number among those that are considered enemies, those that would seek to divide these nations and kingdoms that are joined together? The answer is yes. It is Ezekiel 37, 21 to 28. Ezekiel 37, 21 to 28. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will bring them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall, no, they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, I the Lord, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Right. So the, the first point at which the nations and kingdoms are actually going to be joined together uh, <clears throat> it's going to it's going to involve the the conversion of Israel, the gathering again of Israel. And in 1643, Israel is not brought back to Palestine. Uh, they've been regathered as of 1948. Uh, they they've been regathered, but and uh, in, in interestingly enough, right, they were regathered. Why? Because this balance of power thing didn't really work out too well in Europe. Okay, uh, and so they're poised now to be at the the tip of the spear for reasserting this uh, this idea in the Psalm League and Covenant, right? That nations are going to be in league with nations through religious covenant, um, and God God says He'll bring them again, and eventually they'll be converted. That's going to lead to, uh, uh, as we're going to see in a moment, that's going to lead to them entering into league or covenant with other nations. So, what the Psalm League and Covenant is doing is laying that foundation for uh, what uh, David Steele describes in his, um, uh, his autobiography. He, he says the Psalm League is the cornerstone of the great millennial temple <clears throat> uh, because it is the, this principle being brought down to the millennium 
<clears throat> that nations uh, should be joined to nations, not through military conquest, we don't absorb them, not through a balance of power. Uh, that's not really unity, right? When you're, when you're in a balance of power, it's uh, uh, what we used to call Mexican standoff, right, where they, you've got two sides that are uh, equally poised to kill the other side if one steps over the line. That's not a position of unity. That's a position of deferred hostility. This covenant position is actually one of peace and commerce and trust and mutual amity. And so anybody who would want to divide, anybody who opposes this idea, is in fact an enemy of the true religion. This is the way foreign policy ought to be conducted. Right? We, the fact that we don't do it this way uh, tells us that we are still in the pocket of the beast. Right? The joining of various nations in covenant is prophesied to occur in the era of the gospel. Look at Isaiah 19, 18 to 25. Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25. <coughs> in that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts. One shall be called the city of destruction. In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they shall cry unto the Lord because of all, because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior and a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall bow a bow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, he shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and, his, and he shall be entreated of them, and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the, the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the Lord, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel mine inheritance. So the joining of nation with nation in the path of reformation is conducive to strengthening those in such a league. Ecclesiastes 4.12. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And we know that those that would seek to divide such joined are sores of discord and strife. Proverbs 16.28. Proverbs 16, verse 28, A froward man soweth strife, and a whisperer separateth chief friends. So let me just say again in closing on this question. When this Psalm League is taken, uh, they actually translated into Latin and sent it to Holland. Uh, the Dutch were fatigued by that 30-year war. Um, and the, what came out of that was something called the Peace of Westphalia uh, in, I believe, 1648. <clears throat> that becomes the model. That's why I say by around 1650, everything shifts. And interestingly enough, um, the, the whole emphasis, uh, 1650s a year, the last year that the Covenanted Reformation hangs together. It's not yet time for the millennium, but this brief period gives us insight, a window, into what the character of the church will be and the nations, how they will interact during the millennium. <coughs> What this means is anyone who's pushing a different agenda, 
internationally, just like anyone who's pushing a different agenda nationally, uh, causing division and strife. They're enemies of the true religion. Right? The true religion will bring true unity. If you're pushing some other agenda and telling us this is going to bring unity, right? it's not. It can't. Because even people of a single ethnicity are going to have problems with one another if they're not of the same culture and mindset. Right. What what the this covenant idea does is allows for uh, that that um, situation which was remedial that God, you know, in, in uh, Babel, uh, when He scattered the people and split them up <coughs> and made them dwell in different nations and speak different languages, um, we're not to try to dissolve the idea of nation, nationality or ethnicity. Uh, that's trying to build a Tower of Babel all over again. The means to bring about harmony amongst mankind is not through a civil union, a giant empire. Right? In the Bible, all the empires are bad. Think about it. You know, Egypt, empire, bad. Babylon, empire, bad. Media Persia, empire, bad. Greek Empire, bad. Roman Empire, bad. Empire is not a good model. Because empires are a, 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 uh, an irreligious attempt to build the Tower of Babel. To bring about the unity of mankind apart from the true God. God has chosen the foolish things to subvert the wisdom of this world and we're, we know f that the millennium will be of a very different character. There will be nations who will be civically and civilly in, in states of, of division, ethnically, but they will be in harmony and unity religiously. Because one religion and, and the covenant of that religion will spread. And so it's not, a, it's not a matter of of one group being in a position to claim superiority or uh, some kind of hegemony over another group. Right? The idea of hegemony arises in, in and from a world that thinks in terms of balance of power. That's why when people hear or you suggest that we need to have a, a you know a, a, a majority ethnicity of the same culture and mindset to have a coherent nation-state. Uh, they hear it in terms of, of the peace of Westphalia and the balance of power. It's all heard in terms of hegemony. And hegemony is just a hostile opposition of force. The answer is this idea of covenant, which is an extension of <coughs> peace um, from nation to nation. All right. <clears throat> Question five. Should we number among those that are considered enemies, those that make factions or parties among the people, contrary to the Solemn League and Covenant? And the answer again is yes. First Corinthians one ten. First Corinthians one ten. 
And I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So we're, we're to be joined with the same mind, the same judgment. The Bible uh, it talks about having the same lip, the same speech. Uh, the, the reason why uh, these ethnic divisions occur is because there's been a division in language. And Romanism, remember, Romanism wanted us all to worship in Latin. And the Protestants said, no, 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 no. See, that's, that's also the church trying to make an empire. Right? But it's not to be an empire. We're not to try to make an empire. God put an end to that. Right? That, that was not a healthy, uh, a healthy impulse on the part of uh, wicked and sinful fallen mankind. Like the divisions of the churches, and we even see this in the book of Acts, uh, there's, there's actually an argument between the people who spoke Hebrew and the people who spoke Greek. And the apostles have to deal with that. And so they're going to have a different congregation. Language causes division necessarily. And that is not an illegitimate thing. God imposed it as a restraint on the, the wickedness of mankind. But he's also able to redeem us through that, just as he, uh, just as he did through our nature and coming in our nature. Nothing is more inconsistent on the part of, the, of Christians than to be at variance among themselves. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 18, and 19. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. We're to speak the same thing, right? We're to we're to have uh, the same mind. We're to be thinking in the same way, and and yet we we know that there are going to be differences. Right? When the language you speak has the ability to shape the way you look at things and and the emphases you have, and. Um, that's okay. There are those allowances that are permissible in in the churches. We we acknowledge that um, we're allowed to have the word of God in our own language, and to a certain extent, you know, your language is going to determine things as fundamental as how you sing the psalms. We, we use English meter, but our friends in Brazil have trouble with that English meter. <clears throat> Portuguese evidently doesn't lend itself so well to the use of English meter. Um, I suspect that there's a similar issue when you start getting into some of those uh, Asiatic languages, like Chinese, Japanese, Korean. But anyway, that, that, that's not what's important. What's important is that our fundamental confession, belief, and uh, the shape of our practice bears resemblance to one another. Right? We, we look like Christians 
and we talk like Christians and we behave like Christians, right? What's immoral in North America is immoral in South America and everywhere else in the world. And what's moral here is moral everywhere else and vice versa. It's a main article of our religion that would be in harmony among ourselves. And farther, on such agreement, the safety of the church rests and is dependent. So look at 1 Corinthians 12.25 and Psalm 133.1. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 25. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Yeah, so Luke bears witness to believers in the primitive church that they had one heart and one soul. Think about that. Look at Acts uh, 2.46. Acts 2, verse 46. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. <clears throat> if one whole, one heart, one soul. Right there, that is, there's one principle of life, as it were. The singleness of heart and soul formed the basis of their communitarian activities. Acts four thirty two. Acts four thirty two. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Yeah, so again, and I think I said this last time, uh, the, the things that the modern welfare state has taken up uh, in Western societies, uh, matters of health, education, and welfare, those things at the Reformation and the Protestant nations were generally committed to the charge of the church. Um, and they were taken care of. Now, in a nation where you have a majority uh, ethnicity professing the true religion, you have the ideal place for the expression of this communitarian activity where uh, you can have things in common like that, common uh, health care, common welfare, common education. Right? Those things are there. But when that breaks down, uh, whether we're talking about, particularly when, when there's no common religion, when there's no professional true religion, and that breaks down ethnically, you don't have a basis for that communitarianism. Right? Uh, people, groups become suspicious of one another. Uh, they become fights over the largesse of a society. Uh, fights, by the way, that you don't see uh, in a place, say, like Norway or Sweden uh, or some of those Scandinavian countries where they have a very high degree of homogeneity. Ethnically, even though they've abandoned the profession of true religion, that has been enough to maintain that communitarian spirit without all of this contest. Right? Um, but that becomes a problem. And so again, the answer here is Christianity, assimilation, uh, and, and having a stable majoritarian ethnic population that is capable, uh, that is professing the true religion 
and is capable of maintaining that communitarian standard. Without that, there will be no stability, societal stability. Uh, that will remain a problem, I think, in this country and any other country that's trying this experiment, uh, like Canada. Right? Without doubt, this will be found wherever the Spirit of Christ reigns, however, this communitarian uh, attitude. Look at Ephesians 4, 5. Ephesians 4, 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Yeah, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's, there is a singularity that is understood to be permeating the, um, the mind, the heart, that principle of life amongst those who profess the true religion. There should be. When Paul exhorts the Corinthians to speak the same thing, he intimates still more fully from the effect how complete the agreement ought to be, so that no diversity may appear even in words. And I want you to look uh, for comparison at Zephaniah 3 9. Zephaniah 3 verse 9 For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Yeah, the, this idea of turning to them a pure language. And, and uh, it's interesting that the Bible, when, it, when it's looking forward to, to what I believe are talking about, primarily talking about the millennial. Uh, era talks about one language. Paul anticipates that in things he said we've read in First Corinthians, for example. But it's prophesied in the prophets that during the Christian era, the people will be of one language. Will be a pure language. Well, pure language um, is the language of the true religion. The purity is is one that surpasses any earthly division in language that was imposed by Babylon, by Babel. Right? Uh, that, that division that was imposed, the, what the prophets are saying, that will be overcome not, again, by putting everyone under one empire like, say, the, the, the Medo-Persians tried to do, or the Greeks tried to do, or the Romans tried to do, right? which in, in every case, by the way, what happens, uh, because we're living under uh, we're, we're the American wing of the British Empire, right? And what are, what are we? Uh, we? We are exerting hegemony in the world. And the majoritarian population uh, in that empire will exert hegemony throughout the empire. And to the resentment, usually, of others. And, and by the way, if you haven't uh, read it, um, <clears throat> there's a book by a guy named Robert Pape, talks about, uh, I think it's called Why They Hate Us. Um, it's about terrorism, and uh, you will find that the, they don't hate us because they're Muslims. Uh, they hate us because we're exerting this hegemony over them, and they have no control. They feel out of control. Right? That's, that's the problem when you try to overcome a people rather than bring them the gospel and convert them. Right, You're, there's a difference between befriending a people and and engaging them to profess a true religion versus enslaving a people and bringing them forcibly under your hand. And the Bible, the Bible frowns on that the the latter. Right, that's the that's the method of empire, <clears throat> and it's never good. It didn't. It, it it's never really worked well. 
Um, well, it's worked well for the, the you know, majoritarian hegemonist populations, but the people being subjugated, it's not a pleasant experience. All right, it's difficult indeed of attainment, but still it's necessary among Christians from whom there is required not merely one faith, but also one confession. Look at Romans uh, 15, 6. Romans 15, verse 6, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, so those who make factions and parties among the people of God are enemies of Christ, and they act contrary to the, that course of reformation laid down in the Solemn League and Covenant. In Romans 16, 17, and 18. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So, um, again, Paul tells us uh, that these people who are causing these divisions uh, were to mark them and avoid them you know we, we're to be very careful they're they're a problem uh, and so it's important and this is why in the church we have again we have terms of communion uh, we require an assent to the certain doctrinal standards uh, a familiarity and consent to them uh, it's not enough to say I believe the Bible and the reason it's not enough is because uh, there are plenty of heretics and, and errorists and so on who said well we believe the Bible too uh, but we believe this is what it means so we want you to understand we want you to believe the Bible but we want you to believe the Bible as it mean it, you know saying what it, it says and meaning what it really means and not twisted <coughs> and contorted in some of these various heretical uh, and, and schismatical ways. Um, the requirement of one mind, this is exactly why, and I've talked about this in different contexts, but <coughs> let me just say the, the word catechism, uh, is a word which appears in the Greek in, in uh, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, and he talks about those who are taught uh, teaching. And catechism, the word that's used, uh, that we translate, or we could translate catechism, it's not in the King James, but it is in Greek, the word catechism. Uh, they're to catechize, those who have been taught are to catechize and teach others. Catechize, the word means to... Uh, holler down into a cave so that you hear an echo back. What, what is that echo? Well, it's not something different than you hollered down in the cave, right? It's the same words that are coming back to you. And this is why from the very earliest days, post-apostolic days, once these heresies start to arise, uh, the early church embarks on this project of writing creeds to exclude these erroneous and heretical opinions, right? To make sure that people don't get caught up into believing this stuff. When you speak one thing, and this is again why we we advocate having 
you know, one form of catechism in our church, right? You want you speaking the same things. We can we can talk together. We have we should be using one approved translation of the Bible. Uh, not that it's perfect in every respect, but it, it's a it's a starting point. We learn to speak the same way, and we can speak about the same thing in the same way. Right? You develop a, a a mindset, a communitarian mindset which allows us to develop a proper associational and communitarian way of thinking, which is what the Psalm Lincoln Covenant really is about. Okay, if, the, if the National Covenant is, is um, about national cohesion, the Psalm League is certainly about taking that kind of national cohesion and spreading it through the world. Right? That begins with the church, family, uh, the, the building blocks of, of that nation. And so we, we want to encourage people <clears throat> to be of one mind. You know, everybody doesn't need to have an opinion. They, I think this is the best translation or that's the best translation. You, know, it's, you should be content for the church uh, to tell you this is the best translation, here's why. Because this is a translation we're talking about. This is a translation we're expositing from, and, and, and we're using this in the, um, the conversation of the church. Right? And that, uh, just in terms of the King James, I would say this in, in defense of the King James historically. Uh, people who stop reading the King James, people who become unfamiliar with the King James, have lost access to most Reformed theology in English. Uh, since the King James in 1611. And frankly, if you understand the King James is uh, a bit of a, uh, an update, uh, so it was a current remodeling at the time of some of the earlier English versions, you will understand then that the general uh, spirit of that translation is traceable back to the earliest days of all English-speaking Reformed theology. And so you're not going to be cut off from that. Whereas if you start reading some of these modern books, um, you'll find them quoting from all different things. And sometimes I'm not even sure if they're quoting from the Bible. Uh, some of these things are so far off. At least when they quote the King James, I know what they're quoting, and I, I can go and check what they're quoting if I have a question about the conclusions they're drawing. Uh, and we have tools for that. We don't have nearly as many helps and tools and commentaries uh, when it comes to other translations. And, and that's not getting into the textual, the underlying text, text issue, which you hear me referring to time and again, uh, the corrupt texts that they're using in so many of them. All right, let's move on to question six. Is it a proper thing to seek that such receive the condign punishment as their degree of offenses? shall require or deserve, or as the judges shall find convenient? And the answer is yes. Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17, Exodus 21, 22. Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. And I charge your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother, and the stranger that is with him. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. 
In Exodus 21, verse 22, If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Yeah, so... Um, the judges are required to make application of the law. And um, let me just say that that uh, there are certain views that put the law in this very rigid straitjacket um, <clears throat> which if, if the law were applicable at all times and all places in the same way uh, that is to say if the law were simply applicable from an objective point of view without needing to take into account the subjective that is the person that under consideration the alleged sin or crime etc uh, judges would be unnecessary but judges are necessary because uh, we are not simply uh, sinning or, or committing <coughs> offenses but these things are all occurring in a much more dynamic setting or situation and so for this very reason God has appointed judges in 2 Samuel 23 3 2 Samuel 23 <coughs> verse 3 the God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in fear of God. Yeah, he that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Those are the two requirements. And justice means you have to be familiar with the law. Uh, the fear of God means that you have to be willing to apply that law impartially. Right, without respect of persons, and yet um, in in a manner that is nuanced, that is that is um, potentially um, something uh, potentially something that's being applied in a way that takes into account not just the objective law, but the that subjective uh, evidence, testimony, and and uh, circumstance. Judgment must be given according to the merits of the cause, without regard to the quality of the persons. Exodus twenty three two three seven and eight. Exodus twenty three verses two and three. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. Verses 7 and 8. Keep thee far from the false matter, and the innocent and righteous shall, shall thou not slay. For I will not justify the wicked, and thou shalt take no gift, for the gift windeth the wise, and perverteth the words of the righteous. So when you're judging, uh, you have to judge as though before God, right? You're, you're going to have to address the merit of the cause. Again, the cause is not the law. The law is what you need to know. 
That's subjective. The merits of the cause are all the things that go into that uh, that charge being brought or that that um, uh, situation arising necessitating coming before the judge. It's the wisdom of judgment to seek equity without respect of persons. Look at Proverbs 24, 23. Proverbs 24, verse 23. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. It's not good to have respect of persons in judgment. It's, it's wise not to. Because why? Because as soon as you take into account the person, there's a reason why, uh, again, in, in Western jurisprudence, generally you'll see a picture of justice holding scales and having a blindfold. Uh, would that it actually worked that way. Uh, but that's the way it's supposed to work. Too often uh, we find that, you know, if you don't belong to the right class, um, you're not going to get the same kind of justice. Uh, but the Bible says you should. The Bible doesn't know anything about this kind of, of um, discrimination when it comes to person standing before the court. It only wants to hear uh, the causes and then seek to make an, an equitable application of the law to those causes. Right? And, and that's um, that's really how you establish judgment and justice, equity, and a sense of fairness. Right, in a society. Right, equality, in Western terms, uh, in, in Western countries, when we talk about all men being equal, uh, we're not talking about anything else other than this concept of equality. All men ought to be equal before the law. Right? Because you're really not equal in any other way. Some people were bigger, smaller, uh, richer, poorer, um, and, and so on. There are all kinds of differences in people. We're not equal uh, in any other way, but equality was intended to be before the law. And the odd thing, or perhaps not, is that the more we've pushed to try to establish this equality elsewhere, I, I would argue the less equal people have become before the law. And maybe it's because they have not applied the law equally uh, that we've fallen into this, but uh, there seems to be some connection there. All right, the natives must not be suffered to abuse the strangers any more than uh, than the stranger that uh, any more than the strangers to insult the natives or to encroach upon them. Uh, Leviticus eighteen twenty six and nineteen thirty three. Leviticus 18, verse 26. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. Leviticus 19:33. And if a stranger sojourn thee, with thee in, the, in your land, you shall not vex him. Yeah, don't vex him. Right? Don't, don't, um, don't do those kinds of things that cause them oppression. 
This is the rule. But the Bible, um, the Bible enjoins a standard of justice upon a just nation that is equal for the native-born as for those who are not. Right? The law must be applied in the same way. The great must not be suffered to oppress the small nor to crush them any more than the small to rob the great or to affront them. Leviticus 19.15 Leviticus 19 verse 15 You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor nor honor the person of the mighty but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. In righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. Instead, the rule of law is to be imposed impartially upon those who come within the compass of the nation and therefore subject to its government. Leviticus 24, uh, 22. Leviticus 24, verse 22. You shall have one manner of law as well as for the stranger, as for one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Yeah, so, you know, when we consider, first of all, that at the center of all uh, civil law should be enshrined the Ten Commandments, you know, they shouldn't be applied one way for people who are within and another way for people who are without. Right? You don't get a pass on murder because you're a Jew. Right? You didn't get that pass. You didn't get to commit idolatry because you were a Jew. In fact, in some respects, because you knew the law, uh, that was one of those circumstances that was found to be a little bit more aggravating, perhaps in your case. You should know the law. Right. No faces must be known in judgment, but unbribed, unbiased equity must always pass sentence. Deuteronomy 16, 19. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. You're not to rest judgment. That is, you're not to twist and pervert it. That's exactly what happens when respect of persons begins to come into view. You know, the, the idea that a judge uh, wears a, a robe or a gown was really to instill that idea that they represented impartial judicial um, restraint in you know in their in in their um, dealing with the case. The judges were supposed to be the ones who were, in fact, uh, most dispassionate in many respects, right? In, in their settling of, of the case. You know, they have to listen to uh, the causes. They have to hear people out on both sides and then they have to make a just application of whatever the, the case from, you know, cases regarding commerce to cases in, in capital matters. The judge is not supposed to be someone who's sitting there um, 
bought and paid for by one party over another or predisposed to be more favorable to one party than another. There should be that blindness as much as possible. And by the way, because of the difficulty in this, in Western societies we've had historically this idea of ascending courts, right? That you have a right of an appeal. There's a right to an appeal. If you can show that the judge had it in for you, then you know you you get another uh, another shot at finding justice. This is exactly why it's been required that judges who have any connection to a case usually um, they're required to recuse themselves. You know, in any kind of point of contest. You know, and if there's anything at all that would that, that they had any kind of involvement that in any way might be thought to uh, be an impediment and sway them to have regard to someone's person rather than the cause and the law, then they ought to step down and let someone else do it. It's based upon this principle. So a lot of procedural law can be derived from these uh, these laws that we find in Scripture. And a lot of laws that we have in the West are good, and historically they've been good and, and just precisely because they're conformed to this ideal. Uh, the problem is when you have a people who are no longer themselves confessing, professing the true religion, trying to execute this ideal. It's hard enough right, when you are aware of your fallen estate and you are aware of your uh, your status as a sinner before God to go into that situation and when you have a, a sense, a general sense of, of uh, what Christianity is about to go into that and be fair, right, to deal with people in an equitable manner. That's, that's hard enough. When you don't have that, uh, you know, frankly, you need to understand, people who are unconverted are, uh, they're not even trying to be moral. Not, at least not from any principle that's honoring God, and so it's not going to be efficacious in this realm either. It's not to say that we should abandon these principles. It is to say, as the Bible does, we shouldn't be sending a bunch of people over us to judge us and to rule over us who are not our brothers. That is that are not, in fact, fellow believers or making a profession of the true religion. And that's what this is about. The Solemn League is about seeing this happen. Right When discovery has been made of such as seek to undermine the covenanted work of reformation, supreme judicatories, or those having power from them, look at his, uh, Exodus 18, 21 and 26. Exodus 18, verses 21 to 26. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men such as fear God men of truth hating covetousness and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds rulers of rulers of fifties and rulers of tens and let them judge the people at all seasons and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee but every small matter they shall judge so that so shall it be easier for thyself and they shall bear the burden with thee and thou shalt do this thing and com in God command thee so that thou shalt be able to endure 
and all those people shall also go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads of the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons, the hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. Yeah, so, the, the, again, the, this idea of ascending courts and so on is, is a good one. Uh, but the, the supreme judicatories are to mete out deserved punishments as required, where it's found to be convenient for the interests of the commonwealth. Look at Ezra 7, 25 and 26. Ezra 7, verses 25 and 26. And now, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river. All such as know the laws of thy God, and teach them, and teach ye them that know them not. And whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death, or to banishment, or to confiscation of goods, or to imprisonment. So again, um, it, there's a discretion among the judges, but it's not a discretion to abandon the law. It's a discretion. To, with respect to the causes that are presented and how to weigh them. And then having weighed them, they have an obligation to impose those punishments or penalties that, in fact, are required and in the interest of the Commonwealth. So that takes us through article, the, the, the fourth article, um, next time we'll look at the fifth article and we'll continue this discussion about reformation in the Commonwealth and, and uh, the reformations being presented in the Psalm Lake.